a cat moving in with a new human. It took a little getting used to. She has these weird games she likes to play, like this giant feather. She sticks it in my face. I swat it away. She sticks it in my face. I swat it away. It's almost like she thinks I enjoy it. But seeing how much fun she gets out of it, well, I guess it makes it all worth it. Humans. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. You're listening to one of the most beautiful songs of our time. The kind of song that has ushered in a new golden era in popular music. An era of songs with refreshing and imaginative melodies. Of songs that say something new and honest about love, life, and the world we live in. Only trouble is, the songs of today have to compete with the sound of today. A harsh, over-amplified sound that can smother the prettiest of melodies and sheer electronic din, like this. There's a melody behind all that noise. There's a song as lovely and lasting as any of your favorite tunes. Become one with the sound of today. Train to be a DJ at WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Weekly training sessions are held Sundays at 4 o'clock in our lobby in the basement of the Student Activities Building of the University of Michigan. All you have to do is show up to enter the training process. As a University of Michigan student, you'll get a lesson on WCBN and learn how to make a demo tape. For more information, see www.wcbn.org or email training at wcbn.org for more details. Soon you'll be playing today's loveliest music. Well, we never thought we'd get here. But the White Panthers made me come. And now they forced me. And you're listening to WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. And this is their hostage, Genesis Briar Purich. <laughs> to Gray Matters, your weekly media, press analysis, current events, hodgepodge of go-go, right here from WCBN. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be doing the show this evening as Dick Whaley is on another extended leave. And so, uh, been away. Last week, we uh, just rebroadcast an older episode and thanks to Tex for engineering all that for you. Um, probably just going to talk a little bit about Egypt here uh, to get things rolling. Uh, of course, we'll be coming up locally here on uh, students moving in. It's already begun. The process has begun. So uh, lots of traffic in town. Um, the great uh, film director, Jer uh, uh, Werner Herzog, uh, has recently completed a... Uh, 
short film. It's about a 32, 34-minute piece uh, as part of a safety campaign against texting while driving. And while Herzog has become uh, perhaps the world's preeminent, uh, uh, certainly most prolific uh, director of documentaries in the past uh, 10 years or so, uh, this is one that I suspect will find uh, possibly his widest audience yet because this is going to become part of a national safety campaign uh, directed at uh, school, high school age uh, kids who are, of course, new drivers, and it's the generation that texts. Uh, I've watched about the first uh, 12 minutes of this film, and I strongly urge uh, that you uh, do so as well. Uh, noticed some just terrible, uh, astonishingly bad driving in town lately. Uh, two incidents on a Sunday afternoon of uh, one guy driving right through uh, a red light. Fortunately, those of us who had the right of way uh, noticed and stopped in time. Um, and then just after that, uh, a person who's lane changing while texting. Did they mean to lane change? Well, we don't really know. Fortunately, no one injured or hurt in that incident either, but... Uh, you just wonder at what point do people, uh, you know, shame themselves into, uh, I guess I'm not going to tempt fate. Uh, I've already almost killed somebody today uh, while messing with my phone while I'm driving. Maybe I'll hold off for a while on that um, or like never do it. Um, so uh, I'm not going to bother reading any of the uh, articles or so forth about uh, Herzog's film. Um, there's a lot of stuff online about it uh but the film is also online and uh i strongly recommend it um but let's uh also mention something bizarre i heard on the radio up north uh, while we were on our family vacation uh this last week driving back of course uh rush limbaugh rode the right wing radio wave uh to a certain kind of a top I would say it was merely the big top of a large circus tent, uh, but uh, he certainly became a very famous, very powerful uh, broadcaster of uh, loudmouth uh, but ill-informed uh, right-wing policy talking points. <clears throat> the growth of talk radio uh, during the 90s in this country was something that really uh, the right-wing flourished with. It took the uh, left a bit to... Uh, figure out uh, how to respond to that, and they eventually came through with some programming of their own. Uh, but it's amazing how the, so I guess we'll say the democratization of the media, um, if you uh, consider simply having a phone-in show to be a, uh, a true democracy of the radio, um, because there are, of course, screeners uh, who filter calls and critical viewpoints or disincluded and so forth, excluded would be the proper term. But there was a conversation going on in a uh, northern AM uh, radio station uh, right here in the lower portion of Michigan. I forget the actual call letters, but the topic was, should the Upper Peninsula secede and should it seek to become its own state? Uh, of course, we hear this every once in a while about Washington, D.C., wanting to achieve something like statehood. Uh, Puerto Rico, certainly a candidate. Uh, but there are those uh, who, right here in the state of Michigan, believe that the Upper Peninsula should be its own state. And fortunately, the arguments as put forward by those who were calling in in support of this idea 
render pretty clearly the uh, impossibility of such a maneuver. Um, of course, they say that Lansing is uh, corrupt and inefficient and doesn't meet their needs. And uh, while I certainly won't uh, defend Lansing uh, from uh, too many denunciations, um, I think that part of their complaint is that they uh, they feel that they deserve a, a greater share of the money. Well, there's not that much of a tax base up there. And um, they're probably already receiving plenty of, uh, I think, the, the ratio of folks uh, there who receive federal aid uh, for uh, food stamp programs and so forth are uh, pretty high. So there's not a lot of employment opportunity there. Tourism's the, the great thing there. There is some industry, some uh, harvesting of natural resources, but uh, I don't think that's a likely idea. Uh, the separate state of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan uh, of course, living here in southeast Michigan, where the uh, one of the larger concentrations of people in the state, um, it's nice to have access to the range of things that the state of Michigan has. I think it would be better if uh, the state could find way, the Upper Peninsula enthusiasts could find ways to uh, promote the state within the state rather than visualizing it as a separate state. We are two peninsulas surrounded by the... Uh, one of the largest bodies of fresh water in the world. And it seems to me that the tendency towards thinking of Michigan as separate pieces is the wrong direction. Uh, Michigan should be pulling itself together to think about how do we best protect, preserve, uh, and, you know, uh, safeguard uh, this great resource of the Great Lakes, which uh, water levels uh, appear to be up a little bit this year after dipping down precipitously uh, to a pretty substantial low last year's lake levels. Um, so that's a good sign. But there are those uh, further south and west of us who consistently look at the Great Lakes as a sort of a, a spare bathtub filled with water for emergency purposes that they can siphon off. And, of course, Chicago's uh, misuse of Lake Michigan is something that I... Uh, believe is going to become uh, a very important issue. Uh, the sooner we can address it, uh, the better. Uh, but they are uh, sucking a lot of water off of that lake. And of course, as a city on the lake, they do uh, deserve uh, access to it. But uh, uh, the way in which it's done is something that concerns all who live in the Great Lakes region. Well, the big national, uh, international story, of course, is the continued uh, series of breakdowns in Egypt. And as chaotic as it appears to be getting, again, really it's not too much of a surprise. The um, initial stirrings of the so-called Arab Spring in Egypt <coughs> were probably uh, hamstrung from the beginning with the... Uh, conflict that would eventually emerge, which is what we see now, the army versus the Muslim Brotherhood versus the voice in the street. And um, it's not too surprising that we've come to this. What What's awkward is that uh, during the Bush administration, it became a sort of a handy dandy excuse and cover story for uh, military adventurism to say, well, it's about democracy. We're, we're going to bring democracy to the region. 
um, which, of course, America has always used that rhetoric. It's very uh, popular to talk about democracy. It makes Americans uh, at home feel like, well, okay, well, that's a good thing. That's what we're for. We're the pillar of democracy. Okay, you can have your adventurous war. Um, but if you look at the actual track record, it's never really been the long-term uh, ultimate goal of U.S. foreign policy to necessarily spread uh, democracy, because after all, uh, we've upset a number of governments when, in the words of evil, wise man Henry Kissinger, uh, we can't sit by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its own people, namely the voters of Chile, uh, which hadn't really gone communist, but that was his uh, overassessment of the situation. Uh, we've never really been that concerned with democracy. It's stability that the United States has craved internationally. And that's why we've continued to pay the Egyptian army uh, to the tune of about a billion dollars a year. Uh, I say the Egyptian army because they pretty much ran the government for most of the last 30 years. And... Uh, reading in the Times today that there's uh, an effort being made to... Uh, free Hosni Mubarak from prison. Well, he's kind of in prison anyway because he's in a hospital bed, essentially. So uh, that's kind of a, uh, okay, I guess we can have him sit someplace else. <laughs> uh, but uh, we can't be surprised that the Army took over. The uh, State Department had to sort of tap dance all around itself to not call it a coup. Is it a coup? Well, uh, as long as the army's keeping order and so forth, it doesn't really matter if we call it a coup. The army's always been the strong background figure of the Egyptian government, whether it was Mubarak or Sadat or you know, decades back. Um, they pretty much control uh, that whole system. So um, how fussy do you want to be about it is really uh, one level of uh, approach. Uh, but I want to share with you now a piece written by Mohammed Malik and Mohammed Amar, who are uh, on the counterpunch uh, site with a piece called Egypt During the Reign of the Lunatics. And these are guys who have been uh, out on the street uh, in Nada Square uh, at the university in Cairo. And so it's really a sort of a firsthand account of uh, some recent events, something that you don't often get. So uh, I will read this now to you. It's available on the counterpunch.org website as of August 19th. And the dateline is Giza. Following our last dispatch from Giza on the 14th of August, after being brutally evicted from our protest camp in Nada Square in front of Cairo University, our group proceeded to join the protest of Mustafa Mahmoud Square near the Zamalek Sports Stadium. Unfortunately, this area, known as Mohansin, is a wealth uh, is a wealthy area of Cairo, where the shop owners, residents, and businesses are pro-army and anti-Morsi. Uh, the ousted uh, Muslim Brotherhood president. Uh, just to remind you, uh, Egyptian president, that is. Uh, just to remind you, Cairo, along with the areas to the north immediately surrounding Cairo were the areas which brought a majority for the army's candidate in the presidential elections, Ahmad Shafiq. <clears throat> Mohansin would have been one of the zones where the army had an overwhelming majority because many of those that benefit most from the patronage system that is the Egyptian state live there. 
whilst the army lies at the apex of this food chain. The political conflict in Egypt is, roughly speaking, between the haves and the have-nots, although it is incorrect to say that the pro-Morsi camp is just the poor, for we all own our own businesses. It's just that we struggle under the red tape and the formal and informal taxes imposed on us by the bureaucrats and are more or less condemned to an eternity of being struggling SMEs under the current system. Nothing gets done without kickbacks. It's hardly surprising uh, that the beneficiaries of this patronage system hate the Muslim Brotherhood and Morsi because its so-called Nada Renaissance Manifesto was very simple. It intended to clean up the state and reduce corruption as its central policy plank for increasing business, jobs, and growth. It's also not surprising that one of the residents of Mohansin shouted at us from his balcony when we left Al-Nada Square in Giza and walked towards Mohammed Mahmoud Square and asked us whether we had been well and truly barbecued, given the 6 a.m. onslaught of bulldozers and armored personnel carriers carrying flamethrowers. Unfortunately, once at Mohammed Mahmoud Square, we came under intense fire and two of our colleagues were shot. Mohammed Osman died from bullet wounds to his head and chest. Muhanend Ramadan survived a shot to the head but lost sight in both eyes and will likely be affected by brain damage. Those that saved Muhannad's life were overworked doctors from the Muslim Brotherhood who always worked for free. We had to retreat that day and go home. It's rather unfortunate that many reports call our demonstrations Muslim Brotherhood protests, because when we last did a count at Al-Nada Square of the proportion of Muslim brothers there, they came to about 20 to 25 percent. This is, in fact, a representative proportion across all protesters at the moment. Furthermore, for well over a month now, the protests have been managed by the National Alliance in support of legitimacy... Uh, this national alliance, which, for instance, has announced nine demonstrations for today, the 19th of August, includes elements of the 6th April movement and the whole of the Front for National Conscience. The Front for National Conscience is headed by ex-diplomat Ibrahim Yusri, who was ambassador for Egypt in Algeria during the political crisis of 1991-92 over the role of the uh, Front Islamique du Salut, the FIS, a political party there in Algeria, and uh, talks here to Al Jazeera Arabic of his experience at that time and his strong opposition to the removal of Morsi as duly elected president and to the annulment of the legally binding constitution. Of course, that's a reference to a link in this computer screen uh, to that press conference we read on, though. Yusri is very critical of any political accommodation. The oft-touted idea of a policy of inclusiveness, which Morsi is criticized for not following, and insists on the method of the ballot box as the only objective method for democracy. And this is our view and why we are in the streets from the outset. So yes, we are Morsi supporters, but we are not all Muslim brothers. Morsi, in fact, did the impossible in acquiring the legitimacy of the ballot box for the majority in Egypt through his single-minded dedication. Morsi came to power having tasted the harsh hand of the Egyptian state. He had been in jail for defending the independence 
of the judiciary under Mubarak. And when he came to power, he abided by the law and allowed his enemies total freedom of speech. If certain measures uh, were taken to stop courtiers of the ex-president from directly insulting the prophet, this was no disabling of free speech, but a measure intended to maintain the peace and to try and prevent the very divisiveness and confrontation that these insults were in fact intended to generate. Morsi, unlike Sisi, never closed down TV stations that opposed him, however virulent their attacks. Given his experience, Morsi was under no illusion as to the possible outcome of his rule. His one and only goal would have been to create an elected representative government in Egypt, and everything else would have taken second place to this primary aim. His November 22, 2012 decree in which he rescinded the 8th December, which he rescinded on the 8th of December 2012, and which gave him emergency powers, became the subject of a massive attack by the Egyptian media calling it the main disaster of his rule. Uh, but this was clearly only the case because Marcy had achieved what he wanted to achieve, which was an, an electoral law and a Senate. And this was exactly what the owners of the Egyptian media, the beneficiaries of the Egyptian patronage system, had wanted to avoid. These achievements uh, would have allowed the election of a new parliament, uh, the old one having been canceled unnecessarily, by the Constitutional Court, staffed entirely with courtiers of the ex-president, and this could have been achieved by July 2013 if the coup hadn't happened. But the coup was still too late. Morsi had achieved his aims, legitimacy for the majority of the Egyptian people in five different elections, parliamentary, constitutional, and presidential, in all of which he had, to the fury of the old regime, managed to achieve a majority for his manifesto. What Morsi has done will go down in history as one of the major turning points in Middle Eastern history. Well, we shall see. Uh, political Islam, which has traditionally been a one-dimensional, creedal culture, has now been repositioned in the wider consciousness in terms of democratic legitimacy. This, I think, is a key point. This is entirely against the interests of a military regime that has, since 1973, built its power and reputation not on fighting wars to protect its people, but on running a protection racket. Morsi's main goal has thus been achieved, and the military have consequently gone berserk. The reign of the lunatics has begun. After going home on Friday the 16th of August, we joined the Day of Rage march through Ramses Square. Once again, the march was ambushed and hundreds of people were killed. And once again, the intensity of the fire from rooftops, helicopters, and side streets meant that we had to go home. But a great number of people who were trapped in Ramses Square rushed to the protection of the nearby Fatah Mosque. Hundreds of people were trapped there and came under siege by the Baltajia. Uh, army supporters uh, and uh, the police for 13 hours. Uh, army supporters is my euphemism. Here's the explanation. The Baltagia, you will remember, are the criminals on parole that were the uh, creation of the torture cells uh, who were used against the protesters of the original uh, January 2011 protests and who acquired special notoriety on the 2nd February, the day of the Battle of the Camel street skirmishes, uh, these same uh, Baltagia became the shock troops of the anti-Morsi protests on June 30th in Tahrir Square. 
it's basically your Tauntaun Makut type thug army on the side. The Boltagia are useful because they do anything the police want them to do, and they keep the army mostly out of the fray. Uh, they are also dispensable and unexplainably end up as casualties of Islamist shooters. Uh, Quote-unquote there on that for a sarcastic emphasis. They and plainclothes police also give foreign reporters the chance to write that Morsi supporters are terrorists and carry guns. But a new lunacy seized the police and the army who took over from the Baltagia in the case of the siege of the Fatah Mosque for a major photo op when it was announced that there was incoming fire from the mosque and that terrorists were trapped inside. Azam al-Biblawi, the prime minister, a septuagenarian in his second childhood, came on TV to announce this, and state media flashed a caption saying, Egypt fights terrorism. The reports came that the terrorist had positioned a sniper in the minaret of the mosque, shooting at the police and army. The problem with the report was that, as Abdul Wahid al-Sur editor-in-chief of MENA, M-E-N-A, Middle East and North Africa news agency, later tweeted the entrance to the minaret was from the outside and there was no way the protesters trapped inside could have come out to go into the minaret. Ashur exclaims at the end of his revelation, liars and idiots. Still, Ramsey Street was jam-packed with armored personnel carriers, National Guard, and soldiers in a scene reminiscent of the final minutes of a Blues Brothers film. Well, there, there you have that. Uh, that's not a good scene. That's a great scene in a movie, but it's a complete uh, ignorant chaos. Ignorant armies of the night, we might say. Uh, back to the article. At the same time, a spate of attacks on churches were reported. Islamists were apparently going mad with anger and taking it out on Christians. All the usual NGO suspects immediately issued all the usual demands for the Egyptian government to crack down on inciters of religious hatred. Everybody had forgotten that the ex-Mubarak Minister of Interior, Habib al-Adli, had been in jail, suspected of engineering the Al-Qaedism church bombing on January 2011, which he had blamed on, quote, the Army of Islam. Uh, yeah, Reichstag fire type things, huh? Um, blow up a church, blame the Muslims. Uh, in the case of the current church attacks, however, it happens that a local vicar at a church in Alminya said quite clearly that the Baltagia and the police were the ones responsible for the attacks and the fires started by the throwing of Molotov cocktails. Meanwhile, uh, Nobel Peace Laureate Obama believes that the situation is complex, but that the protection money needs to go on being paid to ensure stability in the region. The problem is that Sisi is demented, and his subalterns, those who are not detained for insubordination, are equally challenged. With friends like these, you don't need enemies. The other problem is that we're going to continue to demonstrate and protest. We owe it to Muhammad Osman, uh, Muhannand Ramadan, and another of our colleagues whom we learned on Facebook has died at Rabah al-Adiwiyah, as well as all the other dead and wounded. This is written by Muhammad Malik, who it says here is a weaver, and Muhammad Omar, a doctor in Cairo. 
And this is, whether you agree with it or not, uh, certainly a uh, on the ground, on the street, uh, in the context uh, point of view, counterpunch.org is, of course, available online. They also produce a newsletter uh, just called Counterpunch. Uh, it was founded by the late, great Alexander Coburn, uh, who wrote for a long time as a columnist for The Nation magazine, passed away last year um, after a long illness. Um, and it's uh, usually worth checking out uh, for some good in-the-field reporting, as it were. Um I'll remind you once again to uh, take a look around online. Most of you will be online at some point, whether you do it for relaxation at home. It's none of my business. Uh, to me, you turn on the Internet after a certain hour, and uh, it's like a vortex mind warp uh, device where five hours go by and you haven't really done anything but look at pictures, um, which I guess would be like watching TV or a movie, but uh, it's just not my thing. Uh, but it's worth seeking this out on the internet if you're on it at work or for your just checking the old email. Uh, the uh, film that uh, Werner Herzog has produced for the organization. Oh, well, let's see here. Uh, actually, AT&T commissioned this film. And it's available online in a number of locations. Uh, Herzog himself uh, doesn't even own a cell phone, but uh, like those of us uh, who are aware and concerned about the growing problem that this truly dangerous situation represents, and with the new normal being a generation who communicate openly and freely via text message, um, we have to remind people that uh, when you're driving, you're behind the wheel, the control panel of uh, something that weighs uh, about a ton and a half, and it's going pretty fast there down the road, and uh, you've got to pay attention to what you're doing when you're driving. That's all there is to it. Uh, so look for this Herzog film. Uh, it won't be in theaters, but it's worth seeing online. Uh, stay tuned for Yazoo City Calling here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Uh, good down-home old-time blues. Why, hello there, Roosevelt. Why, hello there, Lee Green. Why, how you got him this morning? Oh, pretty good, boy. I don't feel so good. Well, I know about the reason you don't feel so good. Because I see your gal catch that number 44 train this morning. And I just about know about how you feel it. You ought to feel just about well enough to pick me them number 44 blues down to a gravy. Oh, I'll pick them for you, boy, because I kind of got them myself. Doggone it. <laughs> Morning on a train number 44. Thought my babe left this morning 
On the train number 44 